So in realizing that this might actually be a big problem, I also suddenly realized that I had been on the drugs for my entire adult life and half of my entire life. And that was just kind of where the glass broke. I had, it had never occurred to me to look at the numbers and that I was put on them when I was 15 and I had turned 30. And therefore, if I kept taking them, I would have spent the majority of my life on these drugs. And I just started to wonder like, who am I without them? Do I need them? Do they need to be changed? Like, how is this gonna all work from a logistical standpoint? What am I gonna do? So the only solution was that I had to get off of the drugs in order to even establish a baseline to figure out what my body was and how my brain worked. So um, I, I, made the, I made the choice to get off the drug and I just kind of, I was just fed up at that point. I mean, I just was kind of so tired of the narrative that had been going on in my life. And I think that by making the choice to leave New York, I just started you know, pushing the snowball down the hill and realized that everything had to change. That's Brooke Seam, and I'm Brian Falchuk. The Do-A-Day Podcast. Will you hear from the most inspiring people who have been through hard times, overcome them, and have turned around to help others with what they've learned? I'm your host, Brian Falchuk. I know because I've lived it myself. I've written about it in my book, Do-A-Day, and that's why I'm bringing you this show. Remember, today's a new day. Go out and do it. Hey, day doers, I've got another episode of the Do A Day podcast for you today. And my guest is Brooke Seam. Who is Brooke Seam? She's categorically homeless. Um, that kind of isn't, well, maybe it's still true. It, it feels less true now, but that's okay. She's settling, she's settled down in Vancouver, but I think that's probably the wrong word to use to describe her settled down. She is an explorer, an adventurer, she's a speaker, a writer, a chef. Um, she had a bakery for a while in New York City. She's traveled all over the world. She's been on uh, Chopped, where she won. She was named as one of Zagat's 30 Under 30. Uh, she's, she's been all over the place, both from a culinary standpoint and a lot of other standpoints. But none of that is really what we talk about. I mean, we talk about it a little bit. But where we focus is her experience with antidepressant, anti-anxiety drugs, from a very young age after her father passed away suddenly, all the way up through the age of 30. So she basically was medicated straight through becoming an adult and into her early adulthood and didn't even really get to know the true her, you know? Uh, And she talks about not just what that was like, but the act of coming off of that because she took herself off those drugs and started to experience who she really was and it's a a pretty amazing journey pretty incredible what she learned and how she's lived since then and why she made that decision so we get into all of it brooks amazing um i loved talking to her we had a great conversation i'm so excited to share this with you and i know you're going to get a lot from it too so with that let's jump into the episode with brooke seam brooke seam thank you so much for joining me today thanks for having me um, and I can't start before just giving a little bit of a shout out to Chris Soroy, <laughs> who made the connection. Um, such an awesome guy and totally gets the purpose of this show. And so when we we got to meet up in person and we're talking about that, and he's like, you have to talk to Brooke. She's, uh, you've got to have her on. And I really like 
he didn't even tell me anything about your story yet before I said yes, definitely. And then he went back <laughs> and explained why. But I just I, I trust him implicitly. But obviously, having listened to it, you are clearly a super good fit. And I'm definitely excited to get the story into the show. Thank you. It's a very high compliment. Um, so I did the little formal bio stuff before we jumped in. But what like what's your deal in a nutshell today? Because you've got You've got quite a a resume, if you want to call it that. Maybe that's too adult of a word for a really cool life that you've built. But um, you've got this explorer bug in you and this traveler Mm -hmm. thing. Like, what's your world like today? Yeah, you're right. Resume does feel a little adult. Does that feel wrong? It does. I mean, nothing in my life uh, has ever really fit onto a piece of paper in any sort of organized way. And it's probably one of the reasons why I gave up trying to find traditional jobs because I just, I, I struggled so much with actually putting a resume together because nothing made sense on paper. Mm. So I just kind of went out and created my own little thing, which seems to be working out uh, much better for me. Yeah. But my life right now, um, it actually just took a pretty big, like had a symbolic gesture happen in the past few days. I had spent eight years living in New York City, and I had an apartment there that just sold um, on Friday. So wow. I am no longer tied to New York City at all. And that is a really big deal for me because I moved there when I was 22, right out of college. And that's where I went to culinary school. And then ultimately, I started a bakery there that I ran with uh, my former business partner for about five years, five, six years before I got an opportunity to travel around the world and I took that opportunity and while I was traveling I passed through Vancouver and I met a man and you know you know lovebirds happened and yeah. now I <laughs> live in Vancouver part time um and on the same day that I uh signed, that, the, that my apartment got sold I actually got put on the lease here in Vancouver so it was this odd little uh, serendipitous yeah. moment that happened. So very symbolic. But I am in Vancouver part time. Yeah, I'm original. I'm American, so I split my time um, in the states as well. And uh, these days, I am going through the process of book publishing. I have a manuscript that I've written, and now I'm at the point where I'm querying agents and whatnot, which is a long, long process that often feels more like starting a business than being an artist. Yeah. And additionally, I develop recipes and, you know, I do some cooking gigs here and there. And then um, I also coach CrossFit when I can and uh, just kind of right now piecing together a little bit of a life. Yeah. Working on some pretty cool projects. So that is all like it's not a resume. It's not a a linear (laughs) path. But what what is really clear in that is um, and we haven't even gotten into like you know, the, the thoughts behind any of this, but there's such a, there's something that is really clear and that's a pursuit of what you care about and a shedding of what you don't. Mm -hmm. And that's like people wish for that, right? You know, that's definitely true, but it's really only become a theme in my life. I would say in the past two years, and it was something that I was very, very bad at up until uh, about two years ago. And I kind of you know, I had had this life in New York that became very much about the things I had created there and the friends that I had and the relationships I had made and the physical place that I lived. I kind of had built it up in my head that, you know, if you could 
succeed in New York as the song goes. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Um, But that if I was going to succeed there, that would, you know, even the struggle of succeeding in New York would therefore mean that I was somehow a better person or something that didn't really make, doesn't really make sense looking back. But I remember feeling like when I actually left New York that I had failed at pretty much everything I had started out to do. Like, you know, my business was, it was successful by definition. I mean, there, you know, we didn't have any debt. We operated in the black, but I still took home almost $0 a year from it. And, you know, I had another job on the side and that to me didn't feel like a successful business because you go in to make money and we made enough to cover expenses, but you know, not enough to like have a really high quality a, a good quality of life so okay, i heard you put it on another podcast where like if you're making cupcakes at two bucks a piece in new york city like that is a lot of cupcakes to support the business and pay rent and yeah like it's it's we not had, all the glamour people see with like lines down the block at sprinkles or no right? not at all yeah. um i mean the places that did have that kind of line around the block success usually came about because they had some sort of other media presence like right. Georgetown Cupcakes was the big one at the time when we opened, you know, they had a reality show. So when they opened, yeah, lines were around the corner because that's how people knew them. But we didn't, we didn't have any of that. We were a tiny little cupcake business in the Lower East Side who had some very loyal clients and we put out a really, really high product, high, excuse me, high quality product that I was very proud of. But, you know, without big bankroll or camera in our faces all the time, it just, it was hard to just kind of get over the hump in order to really make it into the big leagues. Um, That said, it was sustainable. You know, it wasn't something where we ever had to question whether or not we would be open in a month. And, you know, I was grateful for that, but also I just kind of always felt like I wanted a little bit more, but I was legally bound, you know, I had leases and contracts and whatnot. And I just had kind of worked myself into a place where I believed that, you know, the goal was to succeed in New York and that I was not succeeding in New York. And therefore, what was I going to do? It wasn't even that I would like, I knew that I could go somewhere else and get a job and be successful, but I had just kind of made a this decision in my head that if I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself and I couldn't figure out what to do in New York city of all places, how could I move to Boise, Idaho or Nebraska or wherever the hell I would move? and know what I wanted with myself. Like there's so many opportunities in New York. And if I couldn't find it there, why would I be able to find it anywhere else? Which actually like just fueled this huge sense of not being grounded or belonging or having any idea what I wanted to do with myself. Where did that, where did that sense come from? Like it's, it's a bit of judgment, self judgment, but also this, like this imaginary bar that you're Mm -hmm. measuring yourself against that, like, who's to say that's the right bar? Like, where, where right. does that all come from? Um, I think, I, it, it, there, I mean, there, you know, there's a bunch of different factors involved. I mean, I think if you're in a place like New York, you're constantly, even subconsciously, comparing yourself to everyone around sure. you. I mean, it's just impossible to walk down the street and not notice the success of so many other people. Yeah. And especially in, uh, you know, the circles I was running in, I just happened to come across like unbelievably talented people who were 
in jobs that seemed completely like far beyond any measure that I would be able to do. And I didn't really want either, but also it was just the fact that like they kind of had what they wanted and they had all these things and, you know, they would look at me and think that what I was doing was really cool, but I didn't feel that way. Yeah. That's usually the way it is, isn't it? It all, yeah, it always is like that. Um, but if we go even beyond that, I mean, I'm just, I'm just deeply competitive. That's part, that's part of it. And Mm -hmm. I just, I want to win all the time. And so, you know, I wasn't winning in the thing I created, which kind of felt like the ultimate failure. I mean, I literally created a business so I could, you know, be in charge and win all the time. And then it didn't happen. And that's just kind of like a blow to the ego. Cause (laughs) yeah, (laughs) so that was part of it uh, for sure. And then I think just kind of, you know, at the end of it, like I wasn't, I wasn't really truly passionate about it either. I liked creating Mm-hmm. something but I didn't I didn't love the maintenance phase of a business like I loved getting it off the ground I loved pushing it out into the world but once it became kind of this day-to-day okay this is what we're going to do this is what we do at the end of the month I that's not nearly as interesting to me and so it kind of took away the part of it I really loved and did I, you know at that, that about point, yourself really... that you're more like I... that's like the entrepreneur's dilemma it's like you you like creating I... things but not running them Yeah, I think I probably knew on some level, but I hadn't had such an intimate experience with it. And I also sort of believed that if it was the thing that I created or, I mean, you know, helped create anyway, that um, I would be more invested in that day to day. And I found that absolutely not to be the case at all. Yeah. Um, What I I totally want to get into your backstory, but now I'm Mm -hmm. also super fascinated on on the... (laughs) The more recent stuff, what was the, what was the two, you said up until like two years ago. So what was two years ago? So that's kind of when my whole world just totally changed, at least my adult world. So what had happened is I was living in New York. I had this business and we had, we were kind of coming up on, um, we had had a five-year lease. So we knew that in 2017, that's when our lease was going to be up and we were going to have to decide whether or not we wanted to renew it or move or close, whatever we were going to do. So I had sort of mentally committed to seeing it out through then. And then I got this kind of random opportunity to travel around the world for a year through a program called Remote Year, which was brand new at the time. And their goal was to take digital nomads, who are people who can work from wherever their computer is and send them all over the world with a group of 70 strangers who also work like they do. And the idea is that you pay remote ear the equivalent of rent. So, and they cover your housing and flights and itinerary and you travel all around the world with 70 brand new friends and it's like college, but with money and a little bit of maturity, hopefully. Are they documenting so, <laughs> it or anything? <laughs> no, this is just a straight up company. And mm. uh, this was in 2015 that I think I came across their advertisement. And it was just this little beta advertisement. Yeah. And then now, uh, you know, two, 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 almost shoot, almost three years later, since first finding it, um, there are multiple companies that do this. And it's just kind of the so nature of work is migrating a little bit i've never heard of anything like that that's uh, yeah that's really interesting okay all right so that that opportunity presented itself a a couple years back 
Right. And it's a very easy sell, right? I think that I saw a little native Facebook ad that said something along the lines of, do you want to travel the world while you work? And I was like, absolutely, I do. Uh, Also, I was drunk and bored and really angry with my life. So I just like kind of like applied in this sort of late night rage and forgot. It was was either that or get a tattoo that you're going to regret. Like it's one of those are one of the two things you can do. But yeah, but your job wasn't digital oh, nomad no. your job was baking like that doesn't travel with a computer oh yeah no i mean honestly honest to god had i not come home like having a night out with a couple of martinis i probably would not have applied for this because logic would have kicked in and yeah. said like broke you have an apartment and a dog in a bakery like you can't take that and travel but uh i i didn't think of any of that at the time and i just straight up applied and then i got an email a couple weeks later saying like you've made it through the next round and i just sort of started jumping through all the hoops with the sole thought of i i just did not believe that i was going to get chosen for Mm. this i mean it seemed like such a long shot and my life wasn't set up for it so i kind of just kept just kind of wanted to see how far i could get for my own entertainment and then once i actually got accepted into the program I was kind of struck with this choice to make Um, either continue the life I was living and see out the business in 2017 and see what happened or just kind of abort everything and take this opportunity and figure it out. So I decided to take the opportunity and figure it out. It it wasn't even that I was particularly excited about it. Um, I was, I was at a very, very low point and I just, I needed any opportunity to get out of my current situation and I just didn't care what it was. And I was willing to go find any job that I could do online in order to pay for it. And I just needed to get out of my situation. So I knew that I would regret not doing it. And that was my main motivation because it was just an opportunity that was just too, too outstanding to pass up. But, um, in making that choice, another big issue popped up. And then that's kind of where my whole world really changed. So when I was 15, my father suddenly passed away and I was put on a bunch of antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs in order to manage the side effects of his sudden tragic death. In 2001 in Reno, Nevada, when mental health conversations were not what they are now. And, you know, basically people didn't know what to do with me. I, I didn't know what to do with me. So solution was to put me on drugs. Yeah. And so I went on the drugs and stayed on them for the next 15 years. I saw a variety of uh, psychiatrists in the meantime, all of whom continued to just refill the prescriptions. There was never really any discussion about whether or not I should be on them. And it just kind of became easier to stay on them than to even question whether or not they were doing their job. And I had become so used to them because I was only 15 when they put me on them. You know, I was had kind of just started puberty and then I kind of totally came of age on these drugs, went to college, which is a very trying time no matter what. Yeah, I was on the drugs during college, moved to New York, went through my whole career. There was never a good time to consider getting off of them, nor did I have any frame of reference. Uh, for what set what normal might be for me yeah and you didn't because, you didn't get to go through such pivotal mm-hmm. um growth periods that people go through through adolescence through going to college through, like those are such points of change in our lives and you right. didn't get to go through those as you no not at all and i also had no idea that 
that's what was happening, right? right? It wasn't something that really, I think anyone really understood what was happening at the time. And so by the time I hit 30 and this opportunity for remote year had kind of come to fruition, um, I suddenly realized I, I had two realizations. The first was that, you know, it, it might be really difficult to get some of these drugs in a lot of the places we were going to. Like we, we were in 10 different countries total, um, including Cambodia, an island in Thailand that didn't even have a postal service on the island or garbage pickup. Like there just was a few of these countries where I was just not sure that I was going to be able to get these drugs refilled, nor was I sure I could even trust, trust what was being given to me if it was because I'd been on the specific, the specific drugs for so long. So in realizing that this might actually be a big problem, I also suddenly realized that I had been on the drugs for my entire adult life and half of my entire life. Yeah. And that was just kind of where the glass broke. I had, it had never occurred to me to look at the numbers and that I was put on them when I was 15 and I had turned 30. And therefore, if I kept taking them, I would have spent the majority of my life on these drugs. And I just started to wonder, like, who am I without them? Do I need them? Do they need to be changed? Like, how is this going to all work from a logistical standpoint? What am I going to do? So the only solution was that I had to get off of the drugs in order to even establish a baseline to figure out what my body was and how my brain worked. And I was also on a pretty aggressive timeline because I was supposed to leave for Asia. Yeah. Like, and I, I got off the first drug in, in March, I think, and I left for Asia early, very early September, late August. So I had a pretty short w window of time. And for people who have been on medication, this this isn't the same thing. It's like a lot of these drugs mm. take weeks or months to mm -hmm. take effect and the same to stop taking effect. Right. There's a They all have a half-life. So yeah. uh, some of the drugs, one of the drugs I was on stayed in my system. Their half-life is about three, four weeks. And usually the shorter the half-life, the stronger the initial withdrawal symptoms. And then the longer the half-life, the longer the drug stays in your system after you start taking it, the less intense the withdrawal symptoms, but they tend to creep on in a way that is a little less noticeable. So yeah. it's like you might just start feeling a little worse over time as opposed to waking up one morning, you know, covered in sweat and shaking yeah. and seeing things and totally not sure what's happening. So um I I made the I made the choice to get off the drug and I just kind of I was just fed up at that point. I mean I just was sure. kind of so tired of the narrative that had been going on in my life. And I think that by making the choice to leave New York, I just started, you know, pushing the snowball down the hill and realized that everything had to change. Yeah. What what was so, the what was the narrative that you were was it this sense of like I'm not achieving what I said I was going to achieve and you like not being the winner in your own space? Is that what you, you mean know, or was it about something else? No, I I mean I was I was miserable to the point of, you know, suicidal thoughts and oh. just completely like shut down. I, it just was, I, I describe it. I was mostly just waiting, waiting to die. I mean, it was, I literally yeah. created a count. I had calculated my own death and like created, or I took a bunch of life expectancy tests, like a dozen of them and averaged the results and found a date in the future that predicted the day I would die. And then I put it in my calendar and had a countdown that I would just look at every day. It. I just, it just, I just needed the reminder that this would all be over. 
See, I think that's and... such a profound, not to cut you <laughs> off, like that's such a profound yeah. thing that my, I don't know everyone, but my gut is there are a heck of a lot of people who, whether they've done that calculation or it's more of a subconscious thing that that is a thought a lot of people have is like, at some point, this is just going to be over and I just need to, mm-hmm. I, I'm just going to be done then. And it kind of, um, just kind of falling through things until that date, till they don't have to anymore. Right. I think it's super uh, common. I mean, for reference, I have 18,704 days left. <laughs> but who's counting? But who's God. counting? So you st- you're still aware of it. <laughs> I'm still, oh yeah, I have a countdown on my phone. So I I expect you to say like, and once I got through this or once I did this or once I did that, then like, you know, I stopped focusing on it. But you, you know, the day, uh, maybe you just read it off your phone or even worse, you know it by heart. It's dependent. I just, now I just read it. Um, There were times when it was more of like a daily countdown, but I also had a few countdowns going on at the time. I also had one that was a, a countdown to you when our lease was up at the bakery oh, gotcha. because okay. I was, uh, because that was a big source of a lot of my stress. Yeah. And so I just kind of needed to know when that was, when the situation was going to change. And that was ultimately one of the things that inspired this greater countdown is because I had so many little mini countdowns to, to things. And, you know, I just got really kind of wrapped up in the numbers. Brooke, did you have any and, good countdowns? Like mm-hmm. I can't wait till this happens in a good way. Well, I mean, honestly, my my view of all of that was more the positive. I mean, when I looked at this, it was very, I had a very positive reaction to it because for me, this was my light at the end of the tunnel. You know, it was 19,000 days until the light or it was 500 days until the bakery situation changed, whatever it was, that was the light, Um, you know, and uh, even now when I look at that, I don't. I don't see it as I don't see it as a negative and I don't really see it as a positive either. It's just kind of, you just know, is. it's more of just a reminder. It, it yeah. is. And I also know that, I mean, obviously like I could walk out the door and get hit by a bus tomorrow. It's not certainly not scientific, Yeah. Uh, but it, it's just more of this kind of understanding that the time is finite. And when things are bad, it's really comforting to know that things are finite and when things are good, it kind of lights a fire under your butt to know that things are finite as well to really pay attention to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, stoicism 101 effectively, but I just didn't really know what that was at the time. Yeah. Well, I think, so that's a really interesting way of looking at it because my first reaction was like, that's so morbid, you know, and it's such a like downtrodden way of looking at it, but you're also kind of looking at it as a bit freeing and a bit, Mm -hmm. um, keeping you present in appreciating what you've got right now, because it's not, you don't take it for granted. Absolutely. And it also, it really takes the pressure off of things too. I mean, it starts to really put into perspective when you're getting all worked up about something stupid, right. like, like it, it, it really is useless. I mean, to get worked up about 95% of the stuff we get worked up over. Right. And on the, on the flip side, if I start to notice patterns where, you know, I have multiple days or weeks or month or months in a row where there's a single thing that continues to nag. That's not something I want to keep experiencing for however many days I have left. So it gives me a little bit more of a push to really dig into it and deal with it. And it sounds like given the non-resume kind of life that that's actually what you've done. Oh, yeah. It's just been 
two years of annoyingly painful self-growth. <laughs> For good reason, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. I So I cut you off, and I have no clue what we were talking about, but it was awesome nonetheless. Oh, well, good. <laughs> well, so, all right. So you go, you go on, on um, I forgot the name of the program, but you... Remote year. Remote year. So, all right, that's coming up. You start coming off of the drugs, and you've got from March until, what would you say, September? Uh, yeah. So I, I think I left on, like, August 28th and arrived, or 20-something and arrived effectively three days later with the time change right wow. around September. So, because I was flying from the States to Malaysia, which took forever. And the part of your resume you didn't mention was chopped. Oh, yes. So that, was that, that. Oh. in that, was that before the trip started? That is. Fun fact about that. So we filmed Chopped, uh, I think, in early June of 2016. And I had been and with, I'd been withdrawing from antidepressants for two months at that point. I was a complete oh, wreck yeah. leading up to it, like to the point where I almost canceled the entire thing and just backed out because I, I mean, up until that point, I hadn't made it through a single day without having a complete breakdown in one form or another. And I was just convinced that I was going to melt down on national television. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I did. I had to do a lot of work with it with my um, counselor who I was working with at the time just in order to get myself through the fear of not embarrassing myself in it entirely on TV because of being so uh, unstable at the time. And yeah. I'm actually, I did, I cried multiple times that day and I'm still eternally grateful for the, to the editors for not including <laughs> that. They were very kind to me. I think a lot of people, we, we watch a lot of chop junior. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of the kids are crying. Yeah. Um, which is a little bit different. You're probably talking about like in the middle of the pressure of, of the actual competition a little bit of a breakdown more than like, you know, the loser cries, which of course you were not the loser. No. <laughs> yeah. That, that's the funny part about it all is that I ended up winning and I was just, yeah. I was just floored at the end of it. I couldn't believe it. So you, you've watched the episode now, right? Uh, yeah. You know, one of these people who's like, Oh, I can't see myself do it. So as you look back on it, do you see, can you see what you were going through then? Or do you feel like you were hiding oh, it yeah. or you can I tell? See to I see a totally different person. I mean, I, I see, it, it, I, I, it's a little weird. I feel like, you know, at best it was kind of like a twin who wasn't me, but kind of looks the same. Yeah. And even I've had friends who watch it and they kind of say like, I don't know who that person was. And some of that is editing magic. I mean, sure. they, you know, they cut, they make, they make the drama and you know, my storyline had a lot to do with my dancing career and whatnot. So that doesn't really, even talk about really where I'm at now. Yes. <laughs> talk about it yeah well we didn't even i didn't even know about that no. part of you and that like <laughs> i was wondering where the competitive side came from and i was going to ask about like were you an athlete or you know into competitive mm -hmm. sports but then dancing um i, I mean i think i just popped out popped out competitive and i just kind of never i've always been motivated by doing better than other people which just sounds like really unattractive when you put it that way but it's kind of true like that's okay i would just go to class or you know ballet or gymnastics or whatever thing i was doing and i would see that some other kid could do something and i couldn't and i just wouldn't stop until i could do it too right and so that was very effective when it came to getting good at a sport or and so i did ballet very seriously until i was 
18 and then broke both my feet. And that was the end Whoa. of that. Yeah. So oh, man. that, that kind of like identity crisis definitely carried over through my college years. And, you know, I think part of my struggles in my twenties had a lot to do with the fact that I had kind of had that big part of my identity taken away so suddenly. And I was struggling to find something that could kind of equal it. Yeah. And I really, I really wanted it to be cooking and running my business because that would have been easy because that's what I had in my life. Yeah. But the bottom line is it wasn't. And I didn't want to be known as, you know, just a cute little cupcake baker. It wasn't what made me excited in the morning. And so I just kind of always was looking for the thing to define me and could never really find it. Yeah. Um, and you were, you were a now, successful chef too. Like you're the restaurants that you were in. Yeah. I worked in some uh, high end restaurants, but I, I was just a line cook. Like I wasn't in charge of anything. I just, you know, stood behind a stove or whatnot. And, but you still got into competitive places that maybe were more high pressure than chopped was. Uh, oh God, uh, chopped. I mean, chopped was different. I think literally the most emotionally trying day of my entire life. Uh, I've never experienced something that just had so many peaks and valleys where you're going from like completely, completely terrified one minute to yeah. feeling a little relief based on your ingredients to totally screwing it up and then watching <laughs> a camera come through like a little wall you know, as you drop a crab on the ground or whatever it is, and then just having this moment, this intense moment of that you have not only embarrassed yourself on national television, but your entire business is about to just like fold and crumble because you clearly suck at your job. Right. And then, and then you get put on the chopping block and you find out you don't get chopped. So you're totally relieved, but you're also terrified because you have to do it again. And then your own personal editor like pulls you back and inter interviews you on the spot. And she says something like, tell me about how your dead dad would feel about this. And then you start Are sobbing. Are you kidding me? Like, Oh my God. And then I won at the end of the day. So I was just like, I was exhausted. So they it was just, a rough day. Wow. So <laughs> it really it, is what, like, <laughs> reality TV really is what we think it is. You know, I probably, like, I don't know what a multi-day or multi-week yeah. kind of long-term show would be like. But the thing about Chop that is that they had um, been filming us or talking to us for probably, at least with me, about six months. Because I, oh, you know, had to fill up. out. Right. I had to fill out extensive like interview forms in the beginning, and then we had an on-camera interview. And so they came and followed me around for a day when they were filming the little opening scene. So they have, you don't even, you don't remember what you've told them. You know, they obviously got into my backstory, but it doesn't occur to you that when you're six hours into a 14-hour shoot day, they're going to bring up that thing that you mentioned three months ago that you teared up, that you teared right. up about. And it didn't feel manipulative in like a sinister way they're you know they're clearly it's entertainment they're trying to get yeah. to do their job and get their story but it's very effective yeah yeah and you're like super vulnerable in the midst of all that because oh, it's just so up super. and down and you're mic'd all day long too so you they put their your mic on you at like six in the morning and doesn't get taken off until you leave so everything you do and say throughout the day is being recorded it's wild so, how long of a day that is for it was yeah, it was nuts. Minutes of TV, literally. Mm -hmm. Wow. Literal minutes. It's a machine. The show is so well run. And I mean, granted, again, since I, I won, who knows if I would have <laughs> the same the same thoughts on it had I not. But I, I'm. it's just kind of such a 
magnificent production on all aspects that I find it very impressive how well they pull it off and how frequently they film. Yeah. It's nuts. So my son wants to know how you spent the money, which you you don't have to (laughs) answer if you don't want to. Well, I'm going to give him the most grown up answer ever. Um, I paid my taxes with it. So good girl. There you go. (laughs) Yes. Since I'm a a freelancer, you know, I have to pay my own taxes doesn't just get taken out of my paycheck. So the check showed up and I looked at it and I was pretty, you know, proud of myself. I yeah. deposited it into my bank account and then the next day I sent the government most of it mm-hmm. for I the am, year. I am actually gonna share that with him just to help reinforce like responsible life choices. Yeah. Yep. Um and he'll probably also yep. want to know if you still have your chopped chef's jacket. We didn't get ours. And oh I still God. don't know I don't know if that was something that just happened like it got lost in the mail or not but I remember we were there and we asked them if we were going to get our jackets because you know obviously yeah and I thought at least the winner gets it exactly right and the PA kind of said something along the lines of you know maybe just check your mail in a few weeks wink 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 Uh, and we all totally thought that's what he meant like I can't tell uh, you but yes but then no all four of us, none of us ever received it. So See, I thought that was I mean, one I'm of the things waiting. you get is the winner. Wow. I, you know, I, I, I think it should be. Maybe someone will hear this and they'll be like, we should send Brooke a chop chef jacket. All right. I'm, I'm not telling that Clearly part to my son. Because that's like, that's one of the reasons why he wants to be on. He wants to be on Chop Jr. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I don't I don't know what he'd buy with the $10,000, but it probably would be All Minecraft right. related. That's not. Pro tip, pro yes. tip. If he ends up on it, if he ends up on it, um, the running joke is that the kid with the fedora always gets knocked out first. Yeah, so I, no, no fedoras. Yeah, I could totally see that. Yep. Yeah, there's also apparently one cursed bowl in the chopped kitchen, and whenever somebody uses it, they get knocked out first. I don't know which one it is, huh. but there is a bowl somewhere that has just bad juju. Wow. So. Yeah, no fedoras, no curse bowls. Yeah. Um, all right, well, this is totally a different kind of podcast all of a sudden, but I'm sorry to any <laughs> listeners who didn't care. We watch a lot of Food Network in my house. Um, yeah, and I, like, I want to ask you who the, sh- who the judges were, but we're just going to move on. We're going to get back to the actual like, can, life-changing stuff. We can just put a link to the actual episode in the show notes. That would be great, if, if for yeah. no one else than myself, but that's yep. good. Um, okay, so more meaningfully... Uh, so you right. do you do chopped, um, right. and then and then that's like right before you leave, right? That was two or months before okay. I left. About yeah, and it didn't air till February, so I had some time to totally forget about it and move on. Yeah, uh, yeah. And detox from the fifteen years of drugs and continue yeah. that long, 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 long process. So uh, let's let's jump to the trip. Mm-hmm. What? Because that that could be like this life changing, eye opening kind of it. Like, what was it for you? What? How? How did that all play out? Given that you're now a different person. Like, actually, right. Before we do, like, we should talk about what is life after the drugs. Like, ins- oh, immediately sensations, after all that. Yeah, immediately after, it's just the absolute worst. Uh, I mean. So kind of what had happened with me, and you know, I can only speak from my own personal experience. However, I have spoken with enough people who've kind of corroborated a lot of the things I've said. 
but what I noticed is that I, I, t I got off my different drugs one at a time, but there were still enough of them that it was a little hard to tell what reaction was due to what drug. But the first one I got off of was uh, Effexor XR, and that had a really short half-life. So that's only in your system for about three weeks, I believe. And therefore, those three weeks are full of very, very intense physical symptoms for that yeah. drug specifically. And I mean, that ranged from my my sensitivity just went through the roof. Like my hearing became so sensitive that I had trouble going outside because the noise in New yeah, York New City York, was yeah. just overwhelming. Um, I had trouble with a lot of the clothes that I had worn for so long because they felt itchy and incredibly uncomfortable. I was seeing very, very scary graphic visions in my head and worried that I wasn't going to have control over them. Wow. Um, just crying, sobbing, rage-filled episodes, yelling. I mean, just a lot of classic, like, breakdown type yeah. of things that were really more of a result of the fact that I just kind of felt like everything that was in my body that had been stuck in there for so long was trying to get out and that what the drugs had done was just kind of keep the lid on all these emotions. But that as soon as I took it off, there was just no stopping it. Yeah. And I was very lucky at the time to have found an alternative counselor who was helping me through this because I personally had just one terrible experience with psychiatrists after the other. And so I just decided to try something totally different. And so uh, he was helping me through this in a way that was very unexpected and was kind of helping move the process along at even a more of an accelerated rate, I think, because I was just decided that if I'm going to do this, I'm just going to dig into it. Yeah. So I started pulling up all of these old issues that had been suppressed for so long that, you know, they don't immediately have a positive effect. I mean, right. if you, if you start talking about something you haven't talked about in 15 years on Monday, you're not perfectly fine by Wednesday. No, you know, that's like, you've got a couple weeks to deal with that in addition to the physical symptoms. Yeah. But what, what I also noticed at this, oops, sorry. I, I just wanted to ask what, what yep. was, what was alternative about the approach? Was it just talk therapy or was there more to it? Was it EFT or EMDR? Like, was it a different modality? A uh, different modality entirely. It is something that is called, uh, it's a technique called compassion key. And it is based in compassion based therapy, which has to do with effectively sending compassion to the parts of you that are wounded and mm. in pain and it's done over the phone entirely remotely which ended up being a huge blessing because I was traveling and okay. I needed I couldn't take my therapist with me so being able to do it remotely was key but beyond that actually was that was just a lovely perk doing it remotely is actually very functional because it allows the facilitator the counselor and the client to be in their own space to get rid of the distractions of things like sitting across from someone on a couch and looking at their face and feeling like you're being judged, even yeah. though you're not, but you yeah. feel like you're being judged or, you know, when they look at their clipboard and write something down, you know, that, right. What are they little, writing? Exactly. Those silent cues really, at least for me, hugely projected based onto my, how comfortable I felt with this person and what I wanted to tell them yeah. and my feelings of kind of feeling like I had to perform in front of them in order to, balance a line between, you know, crazy enough to need medication and have a valid reason to be here, but not so crazy that like, 
you know, you'll lock me up or yeah, something. Yeah. It's just the dynamic in that scenario never resonated with me. Sure. This worked a lot better. And so that's really important because mm-hmm. something like this, the, the fit, the comfort is unbelievably crucial. Mm-hmm. If you're uncomfortable, how can you expect to get out what needs to come out and feel safe in doing that and supported and take in what what you're getting from the other person? Right. And also, I mean, you know, they talk a lot about finding the right fit for a therapist and all these sorts of things. But to me, it always just felt so impractical because, I mean, I was not, you know, walking around with pockets full of money, you know, most of my extra money went to pay for any insurance that would cover my medication, right? Yeah. Like I didn't have the money to pay $75 a copay to just run around New York city looking for the Try best everyone. fit. Yeah. Right. And then find a year and a half until I was comfortable enough with the person to like tell them what I issues. Right. Yeah. And so uh, I just, it just didn't work for me. And so something about this process did but one of the biggest reasons why it worked so well for me is because it opened up the conversation to discuss topics and roots of issues that I perhaps didn't understand on a physical level. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, I never quite knew where my depression and anxiety came from. Mm-hmm. I knew that you know, when my father died, it felt like it turned something on and that that event kind of turned on the the biology that created this thing that was then medicated. Yeah. But I have many memories of being far younger than that, where a lot of these same feelings existed and it just kind of felt like something that was always there. Mm. And so if you asked me to find the root of it, I couldn't tell you. There wasn't this moment when I was young of some you know, super young, like three or four, having some sort of trauma or yeah. some sort of experience, right? It just, it didn't really exist. So I never had anything to grab onto and therefore thought it was systemic and chronic and genetic and that it would never, ever, ever get better because that's what the doctors were telling me. And if I couldn't figure out why it happened, then it was just, you know, my cross to bear. Yeah. But what this therapy did is that it allowed me to kind of take these very, nebulous things and attach other nebulous concepts to them and by that I mean you know if I was going through the process and an image would come to my head and let's say the image was you know of a person I didn't know um but that had some sort of just someone I could feel like I could describe like a figment of my imagination or perhaps it was this person was just a metaphor Or even perhaps if you want to go there, this was a past life that I was tapping into. Whatever it was, I was able to look at that manifestation that was happening in my head and talk to it and analyze it and see what was happening with it. And I would notice that the roots of my issues would come out through these people or through these objects or through the scenario that I was kind of immersed in in my own head and because I had this other person on the other end of the phone who I wasn't looking into their eyes you know they were kind of just this sounding board that listened to what I had to say and then distilled it and then would bring back these phrases we would use in order to diffuse the stress and emotion around the situation Mm. and 
just kind of stop whatever was manifesting in his tracks. And what would happen then is that once we had kind of isolated whatever this issue was, is I would notice that it would no longer manifest in my life anymore or the intensity of it would really diminish. Yeah. And um, an example, probably a better way to explain it is I'm giving you an example because it's a little hard to conceptualize. But like there was at one point where I just kind of felt like when I was on medication, I kind of would say to people, I always feel like I'm going to lose it or like I'm just going to like start screaming and it's going to be really inappropriate. And that one day I'm just going to lose all control. Mm-hmm. And I felt like the medication was stopping me from actually doing that. But that all that energy was just totally built up in the bottom of my throat. And that I just, oh God, I want to just scream so badly, but I knew I just kind of couldn't do it. Something was stopping me. Then once I got off the medication, that feeling just intensified so much. And to the point where, you know, I would try and scream into pillows or something and it just wouldn't really quite do it. (laughs) I wanted to scream out into the open. And so I was talking with um, my counselor, Edward, about this. And we just kind of went to this place where this person kind of manifested uh, and he just kind of kept saying, you know, I have this image of like a rope or something being in this person's throat. Like, can we, can we work? Can you imagine pulling that rope out? Mm. And, you know, I trusted him enough at this point that I closed my eyes and I totally leaned into it and just went with it. And I imagined this person who is a manifestation of myself, just pulling this very thick rope out of her throat like hand over hand over hand yeah. and at the time I was almost I was almost gagging at the time I was just kind of feeling like this this big knot had kind of come out of my throat in a way that hadn't ever happened over the past 15 years yeah and I, I just I can't explain why why that worked but the whole process just it just brought it together somehow. And once I felt like I had kind of gotten this weird rope out of my throat in my head. Right. And then this, this, this person was then free of that burden and I was kind of able to let that go. And incidentally, what happened is that, that I ended up walking my dog later that night or the next couple days. And it was midnight in New York and it was dark and I stood in the middle of the street and I was, cro- I was crossing the street. I wasn't in the sidewalk I was, or I wasn't in the crosswalk. I was right in the middle of the street and I got halfway in the middle of the street and was so overcome that I screamed at the top of my lungs in the middle of the street. And I felt the entire neighborhood around me just come to a halt. There wasn't that many people out, but I heard everyone stop. It was pitch black. Nobody could see me. And it was just this ultimate release that I had not felt in 15 years that came out because finally whatever had blocked me from being able to express myself was able to get out. Yeah. And so I let it out and I just kind of, I just kind of stood there and I just kept walking and I don't think anyone saw me. I don't think anybody knew where it came from. And, and it's I New York. It's like, home. look, that probably it's was going to happen York. anyway. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I'd never heard something like that <laughs> yeah. in New York. I was shocked at what came out of my own body. 
I was grateful that it was dark because yeah, yeah. Probably but it needed it so needed to up. happen. It had to happen, and it had and to happen in that kind of out in the open. In, in that moment, yeah. I, yeah, it was just. I mean, had I been able to run on a mountaintop and do it, if that had been my situation, great. But sure. it wasn't. Yeah. But there was something about it was the connection between that was one of my very very early sessions. I want to say my second one, maybe that connection between this image in my head and the openness at which I decided to address it where I didn't judge myself. I didn't wonder what the other person was thinking. I didn't question what we were doing. I just said that I was so tired of the situation that I was in and the way I felt that I was going to lean into this 100% and I was going to go with it if it got real weird and it did. But then that coupled with that release of energy where I did not care about what the rest of the world thought of me in the moment at midnight. And then the fact that I felt better than I had in years in the moments and the days after that. And I was having other people tell me that something had changed or me, you know, that made me believe so much in this work that I just trusted everything that came from it. And what has come from it is that issues that I never thought would like would be a big problem in my life have come up during this work in very similar ways and they've been addressed and released. And as a result, it has fundamentally changed me as a person because so many of the things that I had created an identity around, Mm -hmm. you know, whether or not it was, eating disorders or uh, failures in business or relationship issues or personal health issues. All of these things were what had caused the depression. The depression was the symptom of all of these other things. And once I started clearing out all of those other things, the depression lifted as well. And two years, two and a half years later, two years, I don't know how many years at this point, (laughs) um, I'm still off all of the drugs. And there is no absolutely no sign that any of the symptoms have returned i i am confident in saying that i will never go back on any antidepressants or anti-anxiety drug again and that this tool will stay with me for the rest of my life because it continues to help me as issues come up is it it seems to be and and obviously like maybe i'm completely misunderstanding it so feel free to tell me that but it seems to be like Mm -hmm. there's one of the the big struggles that people have with some kind of emotional distress or pain or or this kind of blockage is they can't especially when there isn't a clear like this trauma happened on this date and you never had the problem mm-hmm. before you know like exactly mm-hmm. what you're talking about um it, it's like because there's no face to it because there's no way to fully understand mm-hmm. it it stays this amorphous thing that you can't connect with to work through and it sounds mm-hmm. like this approach is like we're going to give it an embodiment. We're going to give it an image mm-hmm. that you work through. And then the actual releasing can happen because now you've, you've come to mm-hmm. grips with it in some tangible yes. way. Yes. 100% uh, that is part of it. And I think it also kind of goes along with, you know, what you kind of believe personally. And, you know, for me, I, I happen to think that a lot of these issues that I've had are a result of traumas and past lives. That's just simply what I believe. I've had enough experiences that I kind of can't really deny the amount of detail that comes through. Um, 
However, there's also been lots of experiences I've had that have come up where, you know, in talking with my mother about it, we've started to piece together issues that she's had in her life and issues that even my grandfather, grandparents have had in their life. And it's starting to become clear to me that there's an epigenetic component here of things that manifest in my life as, say, financial insecurity or financial issues also existed in their lives as well. And it doesn't really have anything to do with like, I mean, financial stuff is a perfect, is a perfect example because it doesn't really have anything to do with whether or not you have money, right? Like how many people do we all know who have more money than they know what to do with and are still terrified that they're going to lose it? Right. Yep. Right. So, and then, you know, people who don't have a lot of money and whose lives are totally rich. Right. And so when I, when I started to look at that and say like, okay, maybe this financial insecurity I have because I noticed it didn't change. Like when I got $10,000 from Chopped, I didn't feel any better about my financial situation. Yeah. I mean, I really didn't. It was, it was a nice, it was a nice perk, but just, it's just money. Right. Um, but, you know, once I started kind of digging into that and realizing, okay, like when did I start to pick this up? Maybe it wasn't something that happened in my life. Maybe it was something that happened in my parents' life. Maybe it was something that happened in my grandfather's life. Like, is there a way that I can use this technique to even heal their their issues around mm. that just so it doesn't bug me anymore. Right. Totally selfishly dri- driven, right? <laughs> right. And just breaking like, that cycle just, then. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it kind of, it's in by putting a name or a face or an image or whatever it is to it or a feeling, um, like a feeling in your body, like I had with the, the rope in my throat, just kind of really going into that is what allowed me to break through all of those things and that's kind of where the this particular technique really shines that's such a strong image like i'm Mm -hmm. sure everybody listening is exactly picturing like they're either picturing you or for me like i'm picturing you because i'm looking at your picture in skype Mm -hmm. so maybe that's why but or they're Mm -hmm. picturing themselves like Mm it's so clear wow um i had a i had a really interesting debate with someone about epigenetics that they're like, you know, that's a bunch of BS. It's, you know, it's like whatever, like mumbo jumbo, or whatever word they want mm-hmm. to use for it. It's not real. And, uh, you know, I, I actually think it very well may be real. And even if you think it's not like it's not about um, crossing from one life to the other, it's like, well, look, those people raised you or those people raised the people who mm-hmm. raised the people who raised you. And mm-hmm. nature or nurture, one way or the other, like a lot of our personality our values come from the people we grew up with and so if they're you know if their relationship with financial well-being or romantic relationships or like whatever the issue is is a certain way that's explanation enough you know it's like Mm -hmm. you you, if you want to be like oh there's no such thing it can't it can't happen okay fine but do you not believe that your parents raised you and instilled values in you and if they were a certain way there's a chance you may be that way it's like well yeah yeah so like right. <laughs> for people who get uncomfortable with the words or the ideas or like, you mm-hmm. know, you talk about past lives and there's people who are like, yeah, whatever, that's not real. Okay, fine. But there's other stuff that whether you want to believe in it or not, or you want to call it that thing or not, there's still paths that explain why things are going on now when there isn't necessarily um, an explicit root cause in the here and now. Right. And I mean, there are there's a lot of research that's been going on. Epigenetics has kind of taken off really. Yeah, it has. I think like 10, 15 years. I mean, 
there's a book called the biology of belief that came out in 2006 yeah. uh, that specifically talks about how cells and DNA change structure yeah. when it comes to these environmental factors. And um, that was in 2006. I mean, there's, you know, there was a study that came out a couple of years ago um, that has a lot of problems. There are problems in the studies that both, I believe the person who did the study has acknowledged and also, you know, other people in the scientific community um, that, you know, said that the descendants of Holocaust victims are more likely to experience mental health issues PTSD and all those sorts of things. Um, And, you know, it was an early study with a small amount of participants. So of course there are some, you know, questions in there, but I think it's a pretty bold claim, no matter what that to me makes total sense. And, you know, even if it's not as clear cut as, you know, Oh, my parents were in an abusive relationship. So therefore I'm in an abusive relationship. If we think about even just the energy that people put out on a day-to-day basis, I mean, if you're a child and you see that you're and you're around an energy space where your parents are constantly stressed about money or someone has passed away and there's a lot of grief, I mean, to me, it makes total sense that you're going to pick that up and you're going to internalize that yeah, and that's going to have an effect on the rest of your life. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I, I feel like if I have to explain that to people, then it's just never going to get through <laughs> Yeah. So there's, there's, our environment matters. (laughs) Yeah. There's very likely a reason why they're refusing to believe it. Right. And it's not because it's fake. Mm -hmm. It's just a commentary on where they're at. And that's fine. They've got a journey to go through. Um, Yeah. All right. We, we we haven't, we haven't talked about your travel at all. And, and we've already been at it for quite a while. (laughs) And, but I feel like, like travel's amazing and it can be life changing. Um, but there's so much to what you have shared and yeah. I'm just thinking about the people who are, whether it's a struggle with, with medication or just the feelings that you talked about having pre-medication, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot that we've just gone over, like around facing it and figuring out like, how can you bring this to a head so you can work through it? Cause you can't bottle mm-hmm. it up. Well, that is one thing I'll say quickly about the travel is that you know, I can't quite tell, I don't know if the travel hadn't happened and I had still made all the choices I made in order to get off the drugs and, you know, really take some time to deal with my own crap. Um, I don't know how different I would be. Like, it's hard for me to tell how much of this change had to do with the travel. I was, I was lucky to have traveled a little bit internationally already. So I had some experience with that. It wasn't a huge shock, but yeah. What the travel did is that it allowed me to completely isolate all the variables in my life because the only constant was me. Yes. You know, there was everything I had known was gone. My job, my dog, my apartment, my friends, my living situation, my language, you know, my daily routines, my food, all of that was different on at best a month to month basis. And in reality, you know, week to week, I was moving around a lot. So when you take away all the things that you can potentially blame your situation on, and the only thing you're left with is you, that's a really quick way to realize that, you know what, maybe it's time to get your, get your shit together. Uh, And furthermore, in the places I was in, they were all so different that I found that each place gave me kind of a new challenge you know, a new thing that I had to learn in myself, like 
you know, I knew that I had had the issues with noise once I got so sensitive when I got off the drugs in New York. And then I showed up to Malaysia. And if there's anywhere worse in the world that's worse for, um, for noise than Malay- than New York, it's Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. So I spent a month having to deal with my noise issues and figure out how to manage that. But by the time I left, I was a hell of a lot better at it. And I would not have been as good at it had I, you know, gone to a quiet place. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that just kind of kept happening for me as I traveled all around. There was something new that got brought up kind of every month in a way that allowed me to totally isolate it and deal with it. So for me, the beauty of my year of travel was not in seeing beautiful places or in trying new food. You know, all those things were you know great, but it was really in the fact that I was able to isolate the things I needed to work on and then to have the time and space to be able to work on them. And that's why it was so important for me. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. I, there, there's a ton to take in. That's awesome. Um, well, we can always do a part two. If and that's interested. what I'm thinking. Yeah. Like, um, I figured I'd ask you after we're done recording. So you're not too on the spot, but yeah, I feel like we yeah. kind of have to, because yeah, there's a whole, I'd and and like your current life, that's, there's like if we talk six months from now you're gonna be like oh my god there's so much more i have to tell you about now probably the next six months are shaping up to be pretty interesting so i mean fingers crossed yeah (laughs) oh awesome um brooke you like yeah i I get it chris if you're listening (laughs) yeah you're right um you're amazing where can people find out more about you and keep tabs on this world that you're creating Mm -hmm. So I'm most active on social media on Instagram. Um, and then at my, it's just my name, Brooke, B-R-O-O-K-E, Seam, S-I-E-M, one word. You can find me across all social media with my name. My website, Brooke Seam, has my bio and a little bit of my, the best I can do on a resume is on my <laughs> website. <Good. laughs> um, but beyond that, you know, my head is, a little laid low to the ground right now as I'm chugging through all this book stuff because my big goal is to get this book published and tell my story. And I think that that is a way to reach. I want to be able to reach people that way. So if you don't hear from me for a few days, it's probably because I'm writing something or editing something that hopefully the world will see. Cool. (laughs) Do you have a, maybe you don't want to state it. You have a rough sense of when it's coming out. Oh God, no, I don't. Um, that all depends on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I made the mistake I mean, a year ago saying when. yesterday, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, depending when this, maybe then I'll just wait to release this until yesterday is actually when it hits. <laughs> just so you weren't wrong. Um, I don't know. I, I, I always remember. use the followers too, so. True. I put on. We do live in 2018. <laughs> I put on some, uh, some podcasts that my second book was going to come out in 2018. And uh, I, I definitely had every intention of that. Of course. That has not happened. Nope. Um, you can't have to write it for it to come out. That's the that's the thing I'm I'm realizing right yeah. now. Gets yeah, yeah. You do have to do that. It is yeah. part of it is one of the requirements, unfortunately. Yes. Um, Brooke, thank you so much for all the time. This You're is uh, and the, and I have to say, like these are parts of your story that obviously I haven't heard every interview done with you, but there's quite a bit that actually I haven't heard from listening to I don't know five or six different interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just got a ton out of it that I will admit I had no expectation of getting. <laughs> oh, good. So, well, very cool. Glad. Um, you want to help me close out? Yeah. Yeah. T- today's a new day. 
Go out and do it. Awesome. Perfect. Yes. That was amazing. Okay. Or go out and live it. Either way, do it or live it, whichever feels better for you. I'll take all of it. I'm not editing any of this out. Because <laughs> if it comes from you, then it's going to be real. That's all that matters. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Brooke. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. Awesome is Brooke. Right? Can you imagine the feeling as she was coming off of all those medications and just how you know the world was opening up to her but in such a strong way and when she was so raw and so um, affected by it I, I just like the the whole thing about you know her clothes hurting like that's that's pretty wild um, but I'm also really struck by what it must have been like to go through those years you know you think back on for those of you who are older than Brooke thinking back on those late teen early 20 years and you know, how much you changed and grew and experienced and struggled and to not really be you through that and to not really be able to be fully in touch with it. And then to go completely, you know, completely off of everything and sort of starting afresh and having to figure all that out in, in kind of a compressed way, because you're already an adult, you're already out in the world. So you can't take 15 years to figure that stuff out, right? So it all just hit her at once. It's, it's really interesting to me. Um, I think it's easy maybe to just hear this and, and not pause and reflect on what that would be like, but to hear the way Brooke talks about it and to put yourself in her shoes as, uh, you know, as much as anyone can, there's a lot to take from it. And look, you may not be going through exactly what Brooke went through. You may not have the meds to come off of. But we all go through these transformations. We all go through these changes, and it's not always easy, right? And it's not always as straightforward as we wish it was. And sometimes it's a lot more raw than we want it to be. Now, she just went through it a lot more extremely, but there's a lesson for all of us in the extreme version that she lived through. I'm so thankful to have gotten to share her message with all of you. I hope you valued it. I hope you've gotten something out of it. I know I have. I mean, I've actually listened to this episode several times over before putting it out, so I keep getting stuff from it. Um, if you like what you're hearing, hop on over to iTunes and review the show. That means the world to me. It helps get the word out. Subscribe if you're not subscribed already and uh, help spread the word. It means a lot. And if you want more of what Do A Day is all about, you can always go to brianfalchuk.com and you can see everything that I'm doing, whether it's blog articles, um, you know, you can uh, find out more about Do A Day or my other book that I don't know if it's going to be out yet when this comes out or not. We'll have to see, but I am working on it if it's not out. Um, everything, you know, TED Talks have done the whole nine. I put this stuff out to help you out. So I hope you dig in. I hope you take the message in and I hope you use it to go out and do a day. Thanks, everyone.